Welcome to The Drill Down. We've got business stories behind Stocks on a Move. I'm Corey Johnson with episode number 199. Wow. All right, just ahead, a fresh update from Toronto Dominion Bank. Has the Silicon Valley banking contagion spread to the Great White North? And a Lululemon with some unexpected twists and turns in its inventory situation. DSOs do a downward dog. And a Midwestern industrial manufacturer, Worthington Industries, CEO Andy Rose joins us and talks about his adjustments for the uses of modern metals. A fascinating conversation, but first, it's sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA. Never miss another critical event or insight ever with ERA. Customize your company watch list and track key events, mentions, filings, and more, all within an easy-to-use, customizable interface. That's ERA, A-I-E-R-A.com. And you can listen to the Drill Down podcast on any of your favorite podcast platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeart, TuneIn. Hit the subscribe button to make sure you catch every show. And the Drill Down is brought to you by Brain Trust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Brain Trust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com to learn more. I'm Corey Johnson. Welcome to the Drill Down. We explain the business stories behind Stocks in a Move. Joining right now, as always, executive producer Isaac Webster. Isaac, uh, exciting times in the markets. Uh, the shakeup from the Silicon Valley uh, bank collapse and other banks, uh, the Credit Suisse story, uh, really rattling the markets um, without fresh news right now. But boy, we're right on the lookout for it. Yeah, it's been interesting to watch how this has uh, continued to leak on or go on throughout the weeks. Corey, what stocks are you drilling down on today? With that in mind, uh, let's take a look at what's going on up into the Great White North with some really fresh news, fresh comments from Tremont, Toronto Dominion Bank. Great White North, of course, you're talking about Canada. Oh, Canada. And uh, TD Bank, as we know it, TD shares uh, have dropped 11% over the past month. In fact, it's a, a, a nice slope that you see on their one-month chart. And they've dropped 27% in a year. Um, a steady decline if you're looking at the chart. Uh, over a 12-month period. And that reflects right, concerns about the economy in general, uh, about the banking sector in particular. And yes, bleeding over to this giant, you know, $108 billion market cap bank. Um, uh, they reported a quarter most recently to give you a sense of the size of this bank. They had a, a 400, uh, I should say, a $4.16 billion quarterly profit last quarter, adjusted quarterly profit. As you should always ask when you hear about adjusted quarterly profits, what were those adjustments? Well, some of it was for their takeover of First Horizon. And there was $1.2 billion in a settlement, settlement for TD's alleged role in the decade-old $7 billion R. Allen Stanford Ponzi scheme. Remember that one? In the, uh, in the, you know, I do. 2008, it's, 2009. It feels like that was a million years ago, and it was over 10 years ago, but. It was a while ago, and uh, he was convicted. For those yeah. who remember, he was convicted of fraud and money laundering in 2012. He's serving 110 years, but these the slow legal system. Uh, finally, uh, a settlement out of TD Bank from the Financial Post. I am reading, uh, so you can, if they don't like it, they can sue the Financial Post, not me. But according to a lawsuit, Stanford uh, promised above market returns for certificates of deposit, and they said the banks should have known that those were bogus, given the unusually massive wire transfers and daily shipments of bags crammed with investor checks 
from the Texas Financiers Bank on a Caribbean tax haven of Antigua to his U.S. accounts. But that's in the past. We're wow. interested in TD now, particularly <laughs> after the Signature Bank incident, the Silvergate Bank incident, and what we're all calling the Silicon Valley Bank uh, incident. So what a time the for Toronto Dominion. Yeah, I mean, well, the you know, what, what, perhaps exactly like the Illuminati, <laughs> yes, the, the Incinati. Um, uh, what does this mean for TD, right? Well, what a great time to have them speaking at the National Bank Financial Services Conference in Montreal uh, on Wednesday of this week. Any port in a storm? Any port? Is that what's happening to money right now? Here is Michael Rhodes, the group head in the Canadian of Canadian personal banking at uh, TD Bank. But overall, um, actually, we feel very, very good. We have a very good core stable uh, retail deposit base. Um, and I imagine you're going to be asking me about what the performance trends are looking like. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's all pretty benign. It's, it's, it's um, um, you know, our trends we're seeing are deposit flows. We track flow of funds, as you can imagine, on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. And the flows of funds have been pretty consistent pre-Silicon Valley Bank, post-Silicon Valley Bank, which are forecast, no matter what kind of variance I look at, there's nothing particularly like interesting or uh, uh, about the data. It's just um, kind of more BAU is the way I would describe it. Uh, so the deposit base is performing very, very well. Uh, in terms of the uninsured mix, you know, again, I'd actually point to a third party source. Uh, DBRS put out a report that said in the, in the Canadian banking system, um, roughly 65% are uninsured was the number that they had. Um, um, I'm not saying that's our number, but I'll say we feel very good about our deposit book and how it's performing in this environment. So deposit book, good. I mean, that's what you want to hear from any bank right now. That's the question with every bank right now is what's your, what's your loan balance look like? What's marked an asset for sale? And are the deposits mm. still there? They are apparently at Toronto Dominion. That is a scary question. Are the deposits still there? Corey, what is your next drill down? Let's also stick to the north. Not quite as far north as uh, Montreal, but uh, Lululemon Athletica. Lululemon uh, trades under L-U-L-U, Lulu. And shares, if you're looking at, let's look here, a five-day chart, there's a massive lift. Um, they just jump, 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 and they have risen 18% over the past five days. Uh, it's a pretty significant jump. And if you're looking at a year-to-date, 12% since the start of 2023, and uh, a, a healthy 5% increase over the past 12 months. What's going on so with Lulu? Lulu, of course, they're is doing, the, they're doing uh, something the, right. Yeah, the Canadian-based international retailer and maker of of exercise gear, yoga gear. Yes, I did say in the teases at the top, the downward dog with day sales outstanding. Look, a, a year ago, for most of the last year, almost any company and almost any industry we were talking about, we were talking about supply chain problems and problems getting stuff to the places that it, it needed to be, and. The other worry, of course, is what's going to happen with inventories. Yeah, I don't know if you can hear that. We've got like a hailstorm or something hitting uh, the ferry building in San Francisco right now. The weather this year has been very exciting. But inventories, let's get back to inventories. So uh, the big problem with shipping, of course, you can't get the stuff that you want. But if you overorder and you're stuck with it, particularly with fashion or another company we're going to talk about later in the show, uh, there are certain businesses where the stuff you order today will be worthless later. It doesn't just have to be fresh fish. So exciting, all this noise here, all this hail hitting San Francisco. Let's hope it uh, stays outdoors. In any case, 
Uh, you mentioned the movement of Lulu shares. Well, Lulu reported uh, revenues that were up 30% year over year to $2.8 billion. Their company operated store revenue up $1.1 billion, up 15%, which is great. 32 new stores helped. They've got 655 stores um, all over the world. Half the new stores they opened were uh, outside of the U.S. But the real surprise here was you saw this interesting trend, and I'll put this up on my Twitter. Uh, we'll put it on the at Drill Down Pod Twitter as well as my personal Twitter at Corey TV. You can see that the gross margins in this company were kind of slipping a little bit, going from about uh, you know 59%, 58%, 54%, and day sales outstanding. The amount of inventory they have in their stores going up and up and up every quarter. Well, that reversed course, Isaac. That's why the stock turned around because they just said, look, our you know, inventory is much less of a problem and the type of inventory that we have isn't so much of a problem. That yes, there are seasonal things, but there are other things as well that are um, uh, uh, long-term core product that we sell every quarter, all year long, all year long, and that a lot of that inventory is is that kind of a steady state stuff that we always need, and we're not worried about it, and we're not discounting, which shouldn't hurt gross margins. You saw that show up in the numbers. You can also hear it in the comments from Chief Financial Officer Megan Frank. Yeah, so in terms of inventory, um, we've been navigating, um, you know, obviously the dynamic supply chain environment. Um, and we did place a number of core buys earlier to try to manage our air freight expense. We do have a higher uh, proportion of our inventory in core, 45% uh, versus 40% historically. Um, we also saw um, increased air freight impacting our, our cost um, inventory balances. And then we also saw vendors um, who were um, shipping later than historically um, pivot to shipping more on time. So the team is still navigating um, and adjusting to that new reality. Um, and I would say at the end of Q1, we're um, going to see inventory moderate to 30 to 35% growth, and we expect it to come in line towards the second half of the year. Our goal overall is to manage our um, inventory in line with our revenue growth um, and believe um, we'll be there over time. So they've got the CFO expressing some confidence about inventory, which is exactly what you want to hear when it comes to a fashion retailer uh, inventory that isn't a problem. And like I said, you can see it in the numbers. Corey, what is your next drill down? Let's stick with the concept of inventory, but very different kind of business. Micron technology, that giant chip maker that is a often seen of all of the semiconductor companies, maybe all the companies that technology, the most important indicator of future economic activity, Micron reporting earnings this week. Uh, yeah, Micron Technology trades under MU, which means Monsters University in my my home. But uh, MU <laughs> in our world is Micron Technology and shares. If you're looking at a chart, again, they had jumped uh, almost 9% over the past five days. Um, pretty significant leap there. And um, since the since the start of 2023, they've jumped 27%. And uh, but they, you know, if you're looking at a 12 month chart, uh, Micron MU is uh, down 20, almost a little over 21%. So what's going on with MU? So uh, crazy times at Micron. Uh, they reported one of the shittiest quarters I have ever seen in the history of technology. Are we allowed to say that? I think we are. Shitty. I love that. Let's find out. I don't want to offend anybody. <laughs> but yes, that's how it went down. Um, and why do I say that? Because we've seen companies go to zero. Right? We've seen that the last few weeks. 
with Silicon Valley yeah. Bank Corp. Uh, and those, that's pretty yeah. ugly too. But but the dramatic turnaround at Micron is so Micron of them. So for the quarter that ended on March second, three point seven billion in revenues down fifty two percent. A year ago, in the same quarter, they had a two point three billion dollar profit. This quarter, they had a two point three billion dollar loss. That's a four point six uh, billion dollar swing in 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 net income. So uh, I mean, just you say uh, profit, I say loss. A da, really da, 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 da. completely, absolutely terrible quarterly performance. Yeah. Question is, was yeah. it so bad it's good? Could this be the bottom? That's why you see this movement in the stock. There's actually a belief that this quarter was so awful that this could be the real turnaround. This could be the change. You know, Corey, I've always thought of you as a silver lining guy. It's nice to hear you uh, waxing poetic on this. No, that's not likely to happen. So anyway, so, uh, <laughs> it, was, it was interesting, that, though. That is kind of how the market took it. And indeed, the comments, you know, so uh, during the conference call, the CEO was saying that we've seen the worst downturn in the last 13 years, an exceptionally weak pricing environment, significantly affecting our financial performance, direct quote. Nonetheless, uh, it sounded like the long-term outlook was good. So a quick refresher, this company makes DRAM and NAND, N-A-N-D, Flash. DRAM okay, is the main mean? memory in your PC or whatever. It works with your central processing unit, unit in your computer, usually made by Intel or sometimes AMD and others, but uh, uh, it, it, or, or ARM, I should mention. Um, so the DRAM works with the central processing unit. NAND flash, meanwhile, is longer-term data storage. So DRAM is 75% of their business. The other quarter is NAND. Uh, both businesses kind of following the same trends. But here is the CEO, Sanjay Mahortra, talking about uh, what's going on with demand and supply in both of those businesses and what they expect in terms of, yes, their inventory management. It's not yoga pants, but fashion is all the rage when it comes to semiconductors as well. So I think we can look at the question from the demand and the supply point of view. And from the demand side, as we have indicated, that we are uh, seeing that the customer inventories are improving while still elevated, but in aggregate, customer inventories are improving. And we do expect that the volume of shipments, both for DRAM and NAND, will continue to increase on a sequential basis from here on. And um, of course, on the supply side, uh, you have heard actions from uh, industry players and through various reports, you have seen that uh, the CapEx reductions are being made as well as underutilization is being made in the industry. And that is going to be taking out a chunk of, uh, it will take a bite at the supply um, in, in the industry. So basically, the supply trend will also begin to improve. So the demand and supply balance will gradually improve through the course of the year. We have said that uh, inventory, uh, we believe also days of inventory will continue to improve as well. For us, days of inventory peaked in FQ2 and exclusive of inventory adjustments. We would expect days of inventory to continue to improve from here on. We have talked about for our business that we see uh, being close to transition to sequential growth in revenues going forward. So overall, the industry environment with the demand and supply uh, uh, gradually improving, we expect the trajectory of pricing also uh, to be improving. So uh, this then ultimately means that uh, while the profitability remains challenged, 
And yes, free cash flow remains challenged, but the fundamentals of the industry are beginning to improve. And certainly, with the actions that have been taken, it could be that in 2024 timeframe, that there could be shortages in the industry. But overall, uh, Micron, I think, is taking decisive actions, as we have discussed, with respect to managing our CapEx, managing underutilization in the fab, managing OPEX, and really focusing on supply growth as well. So managing those new plants and their CapEx uh, uh, spending, as the, which, which is, again, is a billion-dollar kind of number, many billion dollars for, for new plants and, and decisions they make about CapEx, um, while they're trying to make the latest and greatest kinds of chips, which, are, which make the old chips obsolete, uh, is such a tough thing for Micron. They seem to be handling it okay here um, with this big turnaround and maybe kind of predicting a bottom and a recovery uh, in the semiconductor business uh, from what we've seen in the last couple of years. All right, coming up next, a really interesting company uh, dealing with um, the changes in what's happening with um, the electrification of automobiles, uh, the electrification, the changing ways we receive electronic goods of all kinds uh, in the steel business. Worthington Industries uh, out of Columbus, Ohio, is, is, is a fascinating cutting-edge technology company. You wouldn't expect it given that they make and yeah. twist metal for a living. Worthington Industries CEO Andy Rose joins us with this fascinating story right after this. The Drill Down is brought to you by Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com, to learn more. All right, welcome back to The Drill Down Podcast. We're joined right now by Andy Rose. He's the CEO of Worthington Industries. Um, from the great state of Ohio. Um, glad to have you, Andy. Uh, you guys are in the Columbus, Ohio area. Um, how, how do you describe um, what your business is? And then I kind of want to talk about kind of some of the innovations and how much that business has been changing. I think it's an industry that doesn't, one doesn't necessarily perceive of the, the big changes that, that are happening technologically for your business that you're investing in. But how, how do you describe it in sort of the 30,000 foot view? Yeah, sure. We're an industrial manufacturing company today. We started out as a steel processing business buying big coils of steel. Our founder founded the company in his garage and we've evolved into a much more sophisticated manufacturing company where today about a third of our earnings is from that steel business. About a third is from a business that makes pressurized cylinders that hold all kinds of gas, all shapes and sizes. And then uh, a third of our business is makes acoustical ceilings. So if you think about it in an office building where you see the checkerboard ceilings, we have a joint venture with a company called Armstrong that processes the steel for that. So very profitable niche business that you would never think makes $200 million a year in profit. In profit. Fantastic. Um, uh, so, you know, I, I, uh, what is it that makes that business different than it would have been 10 years ago? So one of the things I like to say is for better or for worse, we are in niche markets where the competition is not particularly sophisticated. And so we have been successful over the past 10 years, really bringing innovation into markets that don't have a lot of that. And the innovation can be in the form of a new product, or it could be in the form of technology maybe that enables that product. So as an example, <clears throat> we have a product that goes on a propane tank that will 
tell you the fill level and where that tank is located so that the propane distributors can do more efficient routing. And so bringing technology into a very non-tech industry is the way that we are succeeding today. And I'm, uh, I'm always struck by that, uh, how much uh, my friend Tom Siebel likes to refer to as digital transformation. And I, I, I used to argue with him that was such a useless word, but then I would see CEOs of all kinds of industries in 2022 and 2023 talking about digital transformation and how that's really changing their business. Um, that there, it's you know, from from my perspective in Silicon Valley, it seems like that work has been done, but it, uh, in fact, it it is it is it's not just bringing technology to things I haven't seen it before. It's bringing the latest technology to things that I haven't seen it before. Yeah, and one of what's really changed, I think, even in the last five or six years, is the cost of that technology has come down dramatically. So, the cost of the sensors, the cost of you know putting Wi-Fi into a facility. And because all of that has become much more affordable, the economics of doing this uh, make a lot more sense. I um, We were packing for a trip and my teenage daughter grabbed a suitcase from the basement uh, that hadn't been used in a long time. She was like, can I use this one? I was like, oh yeah, that was this company that made a special suitcase that had a Bluetooth connection in it. So you can see where your suitcase is. And she says, oh, you, you mean like an AirTag? I'm like, I guess that company's probably not doing too well anymore. Uh, it, it is so fascinating what's happening um, uh, across all industries. And yet, uh, on the other hand, your business is so heavily weighted, uh, pun intended, weighted towards the uh, uh, things involving steel. I was struck in my research by uh, reading that you would process uh, seven and a half million tons of steel. The largest purchase, Worthington Industries, the largest purchaser of steel in the United States if you exclude the automakers. That's incredible. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating. Um, and we do consume a lot of steel. And, you know, the fun part about it is right now there's all of our businesses are going through a transition. And, you know, in the steel processing space, the transition is the transition from combustible engines to electric vehicles. And that obviously has major implications. We bought a business, uh, a year ago that basically processes electrical steel. Electrical steel goes into the batteries. It goes into the transformers for the electrical grids that we need to transmit all this electricity. And so there's a huge opportunity there. It's also a threat, right? We have to respond quickly there. The same thing is happening in what I refer to as the legacy pressure cylinder business. We are transitioning from, um, let's call it diesel, to natural gas, to hopefully someday hydrogen, which is the cleanest form of energy. Um, you know, the cost is still a little high, but as as solar and wind take hold, that cost comes down and we ultimately will get there. It's just a question of time, but that is another opportunity for us because we make tanks that go into the hydrogen economy, both to store it and to transport it and the systems around that. So it's it's a really cool time to be in business. And you think about a company that is just kind of a legacy steel processing business, kind of boring, but is playing a major role in the energy transition. How does electrical steel different from a good old fashioned steel? I mean, it, honestly, if you walked into one of our facilities, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. It's the chemical properties of it and what the chemical properties enable that steel to do. In this case, it's, you know, store energy. Interesting. Uh, I, I would think that's more of an aluminum job. 
Yeah, I mean, aluminum is got a lot of press because it is lighter weight. And so there was this whole concept, if you remember the Ford F-150, it's going to be all aluminum, right, right, right. lightweight. That's exactly that's what I'm thinking about. That's Nirvana. But the reality is aluminum costs twice as much as steel. Um, and at this point, with what's going on over in Europe, there's a shortage of aluminum. So it, it makes it a much more difficult material to work with. And so steel is, has been around forever, and it's going to be around forever, and it's going to play a major role in automotive. Yeah, I have a... Uh, um, uh friend who's part of his investment thesis is the weight of vehicles is so much heavier because of the electric batteries that he's looking for construction investments because the roads are going to get ripped up from these heavy vehicles that are that are you know 50 percent heavier um trashing our roads and bridges but you know luckily we've got an infrastructure bill for those purposes no i think that there's a lot of implications related to that for sure so uh what are the things that you do to drive your business besides preparing for transitions that are happening. How do you go out and capture that business? So we start with the premise that we're in kind of GDP growth businesses, meaning they grow at kind of the rate the economy grows, which historically has been on average two to 3%. And then we want to create growth that is seven to 10%. And so how do we do that? We have essentially three, what we call value drivers. The first is what we call transformation. So transformation is a playbook that we've developed over the last 15 years. That's a way to make our business better. It's a way to increase price. It's a way to become more efficient in your factories. It's a way to reduce the cost of your supply chain. The second of those value drivers is innovation or in, in its purest form, new product development. So coming out with new products, if you come out, if you develop new products, you can add new revenue and you can also charge more for those products. And so it enables you to obviously make more money. And then the third value driver for us is M&A. So we add businesses, new products, new geographies to our portfolio by buying other businesses. And so what I tell people is if we're in businesses that grow two or 3% a year, if we can add 2% from transformation, 2% from new product development and 2% from M&A a year, suddenly we're growing seven to 10% a year and that makes you a world-class company. Yeah, yeah fascinating. Um, and and as, as you do that, um, uh, it introduces complexity of the management of the business and, and, and sort of where you are, but also the complexity at, uh, of the rapid change in your chief commodity, steel. What do you do about the, you know, the, the price changes in steel have been so dramatic in the last I don't know, call it six or seven years more than they had been in the previous. Um, uh, but the adjustment to those commodity prices when you price a deal, how do you, how do, you do that? How quickly do you change prices? For, so I'm, I, what I'm thinking about here is, is the wire companies all have all, practically a trading desk where if you order 100 pounds of copper wire from Houston Wire and Cable, the price at 10 a.m. in the morning might be different at, uh, from what it's going to be at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah, it, constantly adjusting. it has become much more volatile. I mean, just as an example, dur during COVID's hot rolled coil, which is our base material, went from $460 a ton to $1950. So very dramatic. And then it's come all the way back down to, you know, it got as low as 700. It's probably around 1000 right now, maybe 950. Um, and so that volatility does create complexity, but the way we manage that, it's a, it's a little bit different in each business. In the steel processing business, it's actually built into our contracts. So the price resets on a monthly or quarterly basis for our contracts with our customers. And so we mirror a customer contract with 
the mill that we buy the steel from. And so they're essentially matched up so that that margin is locked in. In the rest of our business- plus. Yeah, it's essentially a cost plus, correct, type contract. And then the rest of our businesses that consume steel, um, that's an area where we actually have gotten a lot better in the last six or seven years. We set up price desks almost similar to what you referenced, where when we price and sell products to customers, we are getting real-time pricing data from our, our suppliers, putting it through our cost calculators, and then providing a price to the customer that makes sense. Some of our customers are, you know, obviously more sophisticated, like the Walmarts and the Home Depots of the world. So there can be a lag effect there, but um, it's critically important. If you do not adjust your pricing on, on a real-time basis, you you can get really hurt from the swings in volatile commodity pricing. Fascinating. And are your competitors doing that? Because I would imagine some customers don't, they haven't experienced that, don't like that. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say the the short answer is some of our competitors are doing it and some of them get caught uh, when they don't react quick enough. And that actually can, in some instances, provide opportunities for us. We have actually acquired competitors that have gotten a little bit upside down with their working capital and um, don't have the liquidity to handle, um, you know, the big swings in in commodity pricing. And, and that's another thing. We're, we're a pretty conservative company with respect to taking on debt. And so we always, we have a, we have a mantra, which is uh, modest leverage and ample liquidity. We always want to have plenty of cash and plenty of borrowing capacity to absorb these big swings in commodities and take advantage of some of these opportunities when our customers don't do so well. Do you think if we look back at the business five years from now, it's going to look substantially different? I, I do. I mean, you know, the transitions, the energy transition that that I referenced earlier is, is really starting to take hold. You know, electric vehicles were kind of a, you know, it was sort of Tesla and nobody else really cared. But now all of our major customers are fully focused on converting their fleets to electric vehicles. You know, the, the question is just how quickly are they going to do it? There was actually a good article in The Wall Street Journal yesterday about a lot of the auto executives trying to figure out exactly how fast they should go. But consumers want electric vehicles. They're good vehicles. They're fun to drive. And, and, you know, I think people feel good about them, even even though there are still some issues with the batteries and other things that you referenced. What are you driving? (laughs) I still have a gas powered vehicle, but I have a vehicle on order that is uh, fully electric. So I'm migrating that direction. All right. Well, I wish you luck in that. Andy Rose is the CEO of Worthington Industries, uh, and we're so glad to have you. Well, thanks. I appreciate the time and appreciate you uh, taking the time to introduce our company to folks. Thanks. Coming up next, the bike, the one number that tells us a whole lot about Worthington right after this. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA. With ERA, give yourself an information advantage. Connect directly to earnings calls and other investor events with live transcription and event intelligence. That's ERA, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And hey, if you're having a good time listening to the podcast, have someone else join the party. Tell a friend or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Let the rest of the world know why you like The Drill Down. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at DrillDownPod and connect with us directly at our website, bizpod.net. All right, we're back with the Drill Down Podcast. And we're going to have to bite the one number that tells us a whole lot about Worthington. Cool conversation. Uh, you wouldn't expect to be thinking about um, uh, 
steel, bending steel as as a cutting edge technology, but dealing with the electrification of cars and you think about the modernness of the Ford uh, Lightning F-150 or the Tesla or, or the Audi e-tron or whatever, uh, a lot of that's about uh, what's going on in the metal business and a lot of that's uh, going to be about Worthington. Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating company. They touch so many lives and industries that, you know, you never think about it. Well, so the right, the number that tells us a whole lot. So we didn't talk a lot about the building products business because it's only 12% of the revenues for this company in the last year. We talked a lot about automotive, which is about a third, a little more than a third of revenues. But I thought it was fascinating that while 12% of their business is building products, I'm going to tell you the percentage of their business, their profits that are the building product business. So again, 12% of revenues last year were in fact in the buildings product business. But here's the bite, that one number that tells us a whole lot. 64% of profits last year for this company came from the building products segment. So building products, again, only 12% wow. of revenues, but 64% of profits. They certainly hope that um, the other uh, business that, uh, that uh, the automotive business is turning into will be more profitable than what it used to be. Art, you've been listening to Drill On Podcast. We're grateful for your time. Isaac Webster is our executive producer. Ben Wilson is our editor extraordinaire. I'm Corey Johnson. The Drill On is a production of the Business Podcast Network. Drill On.